0: Hey there, I'm Ho, and you're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. On our last episode, you might remember me being very sad uh, and a little confused about beans and rice. Well, I'm happy to report that this week I was inspired to try a little bit harder. I fried up carnitas, I chopped up onions and cilantro, and seared scallions to make tacos. But you know what the key ingredient was? Fresh corn tortillas that I grabbed from Bolita Masa. A tortilleria in San Francisco. When people in the Bay Area talk about fresh tortillas, they usually mean tortillas made by hand from masa, harina, or corn flour. But bolita masas are different. They're plush, moist, and can really hold a handful of pork with panache. I'm thrilled to tell you that today's guest is the guy who made those tortillas, which are the product of a lot of geeking out over corn and the ancient process of nixtamalization. More on that later. But before Emmanuel Galvan started Bolita Massa, he didn't set out to be the Masa guy in the Bay Area.
1: I didn't want to. I was really hoping someone in the Bay Area would do that before I did so much work. <laughs> it was more out of like an obligation than that I had put on myself or this kind of pressure that I put on myself to just make sure this thing exists in the Bay Area.
0: But now he's a Masa evangelist who spreads his message at farmers markets and pop-ups. And he's using beautiful, super-fresh corn tortillas as a way to connect to his Mexican heritage, undo years of insecurity, and get people really excited about land race corn. So here's my conversation with Emmanuel. So as a self-described masa guy, I don't want to assume that everyone listening knows exactly what masa is. Um, Would you be okay with explaining that?
1: Masa, it literally means dough. But when you're speaking of it in terms of maize, and corn. Masa is a corn dough made from nixtamalized maize. Nixtamalization is a process that involves corn, water, and an alkaline mineral. The nixtamalization process is when you use cook and soak corn maize in that liquid that is water and dissolved cow. We then take that corn that's been soaked, we rinse it, we grind it, and that resulting Maize is a loose dough that's masa.
0: So I want to pause for a second, just in case the listeners don't share the same deep knowledge of nixtamalization. So around a uh, thousand BCE, Mesoamericans figured out how to unlock the nutritional potential of maize, of dried corn. A boiling session with ash or calcium hydroxide softens the grains. And that process makes the nutrients easier for the eater to absorb while also making the grain more amenable to turning into soft and tender masa. The stuff that becomes tamales, tempurado, and tortillas.
1: Yeah, it's thousands of years old. The myth or legend is that people were boiling corn, dried corn, and then ash accidentally fell into their cooking vessel, and that started to soften the maize, And that's when people realized that this process that's happening with ash and the corn made something delicious and made a different product than just spoiled dried corn. Yeah, it's a very ancient method of preparing and cooking corn.
0: Well, I wanted to start at the beginning. Um, You were born in Napa, yes? Yes. And your parents are from Jalisco? Correct. So what brought them there?
1: They came to the Napa Valley because my mom's older brother had moved here and had established himself working at wineries and her younger brother was studying to become a dentist they had this little network and my father moved here first he started working in the wine industry and then my mom soon followed with my brother in her belly
0: mm, okay and you know from my understanding having lived in Jalisco it's a it's corn country i think like flour tortillas are not necessarily a big deal there So can you tell me, like, did you grow up eating tortillas?
1: Yeah, we ate a ton of tortillas, but they were all the packaged um, Mission Guerrero tortillas that you'd find at Safeway or, you know, your local grocery store. It was a big deal when my mom would make, quote unquote, fresh tortillas from maseca flour. We would get excited when she would pull this bag of uh, maseca, which is uh, masa arena from the shelf. And my brother and I would be like like, so happy. We're like, we're making fresh tortillas. and then. Um, I would try to help and like make little balls, little bolitas, and then try to involve myself in the process. But that's what we ate. We 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 ate industrialized corn tortillas.
0: Mm, but even then, I mean, it makes sense too because your parents were working, right? That the fresh tortilla would be such a rarity in your household.
1: Yeah, it was really uncommon to have that fresh uh, tortilla at our household.
0: Even then, though, you could tell the difference.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, it's that aroma that comes from a fresh tortilla. The warmth is just like a very comforting thing. Fresh baked bread, even if you bake it from a Pillsbury packet, it's still so much better because it's warm and it's fresh. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the analogous, uh, you know, uh, scenario with us. We would have, you know, that everyday wonder bread, which was the Guerrero or Mission tortillas. And then we'd have once when my mom would, you know, break out that. Bag of Maseka and we have fresh tortillas. It was special.
0: <laughs> and it seems like what you're describing too is that platonic allegory of the cave, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where you spend a long time looking at the shadows and you're like, oh wow, this is really great. And then you see, you know, the people holding the puppets. So and that's like the the move up to Maseka. And I want to know about when you left the cave. What was that moment?
1: That was seven years ago when I first Went to Mexico as a fully formed adult and just experienced tortillas in a whole nother context, which was, you know, experiencing tortillas made from fresh nixtamal. Because even in Mexico, a lot of the tortillas use masa arena and those are still delicious, right? You have this beautiful, warm tortilla that you get and you're like, that's great. And then you experience it made from fresh nixtamal. You're like, oh, it can be better than that. (laughs) You know, and I think I had to have the experience of eating what I ate growing up for me to really value Mm -hmm. those moments of experiencing fresh, nixtamalized tortillas, because that was really uh, eye-opening. And I could have stopped at the tortillas that were making for my second. I'm like, this is the perfect tortilla, right? And that could have been fine. And a lot of people do stop there. But I think having the curiosity to kind of keep diving into what this thing can be and what it was. Is kind of my leaving the cave moment, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and not to say you know I don't want to denigrate what your parents were doing as you know cave-like. I, no. It's just an, an analogy. I just didn't. I want to make sure that it's not, doesn't come off as a value judgment. Oh, I think you know, what they were doing is probably like so. I'm gonna tell my mom you know, are a cave
1: woman. Um, no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> no, no, um, no. I didn't take it as that at all. I, I totally understand that my parents were doing the best they could under the circumstances they had. Right, and I. That they would have loved to buy fresh masa if it was available to them, and mm-hmm. Napa at the time there wasn't any, you know, anyone nixtamalizing corn and making fresh tortillas for them to have, and they were working a lot, so they didn't have the energy to drive to San Francisco on the weekend and like buy masa for the week. But yeah, I think we're all kind of constrained to our, our caves until we find enough energy and time to kind of step out of them.
0: So I think it's one thing to go to Mexico, try the super fresh tortillas made from nixtamalized masa, and just chalk that up to be an amazing life experience. Mm-hmm. So what made you want to be the masa guy? What made you want that to be a huge part of your life?
1: I-, I didn't want to. I was mm-hmm. really hoping someone in the Bay Area would do that before I <laughs> did so much work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I would make small in my house. And then eventually like would upgrade to like a hand grinder to like a little tiny countertop mill. And I kept making masa for friends and myself the whole time, really honestly praying someone would open an heirloom (laughs) criteria in Oakland or in the Bay Area, San Francisco, wherever. Yeah, it was more out of like an obligation than that I had put on myself or this kind of pressure that I put on myself to just... Make sure this thing exists in the Bay Area. Hmm. As a very curious person, I, w- I just wanted to share this curiosity with people.
0: I want to hear you talk more about your sense of obligation. Who do you feel obliged to? A lot of it's
1: to myself and my family. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents, or my grandmother specifically, growing up, but I never really talked to them about food. Um, hmm. I was very picky as a kid. I wanted nothing to do with Mexican food growing up. So I never really got to spend time with them and learn from them. So yeah, I guess the obligation and responsibility is kind of me trying to reckon with this identity that is kind of not complete, it's lacking a bit of history that I, I really wish I was able to share with my ancestors. Yeah, and I think that's kind of a thing I want other people to experience. And I, you know, I'm so thrilled when Latinos in the mission, I mean farmers market stand come by and try this. And then next week they like bring their mother or their grandmother, like this guy made really good
0: tortillas. And I'm like, oh, this is so cool. <laughs> yeah. What do you hear from people who who show up at the farmers market?
1: People at the farmers market are always initially a little struck by the price.
0: And for reference, how much are your products? So a dozen
1: of tortillas varies from $9 to $12, depending on the varietal okay. of mice. Um, a pound of masa is anywhere from $7 to $9. It's a different price point, right? than the product you would maybe find a La Palma or you would find at another La Finca, for example, because we're, we are doing a very small scale. So it does require a lot of labor for not a lot of product. And I'm trying to make sure that I'm paying myself and valuing my time. So that's kind of the first reaction people have is the price point. And then I'll walk them through the steps that it takes and the labor that it requires to make this product. And they're a little more open to hearing about it. And then we talk about heirloom corn and how, you know, we, we have a conversation about the varietals I'm using this week and where they're from. And it excites people to see someone that's excited about this thing. I'm making a bunch of little masa nerds throughout the Bay area that come by and they're like, (laughs) oh, this week had a really good texture and it was a really soft tea. I'm like, right. They're all so different. And then we kind of talk about it. So it's been really fun to just develop relationships in the community of people who are as curious as myself and, you know, want to learn more about this product and really just are happy that it exists.
0: Oh, that's great. I mean... It's one of those things where, and I'm sure you've been part of these conversations too, where a lot of times when sort of next generation or younger generation folks want to make staples um, that belong to their you know parents' cultures or ethnicities, and you know they want to charge like realistic prices for labor and like ingredients and all of that stuff, it can be really politically fraught, and it can become this sort of identity crisis for people, and you know they might have the labels of like gentrifier you know lopped at them does that ever kind of figure into the way you talk to people
1: yeah it does cuz you know i'm ultimately i'm in the context of a farmers market right or a, a pop up right so like you have to have an instagram account or follow my newsletter to know about me unless you stumble upon me and i think i'm also an american born mexican second generation i've always felt like a white person right in mm. mexico people called me guero, <laughs> like <laughs> the the blondier, you know, it's like because you know, my Spanish isn't great either. I don't have the biggest vocabulary in Spanish. I've kind of lost some of that through years of trying to simulate and just only speak English all the time. <laughs> so there is a little bit of that, but I think people are also very understanding of my m- mission. You know, if we talk for a few moments, I think people can see that I'm not trying to do this for profit or like for, I mean, there's easier ways to make money. Like if I really wanted to profit <laughs> off of it, I'm like, I wouldn't be making them like, small. <laughs> so I think people see that I'm doing this because I truly care about it.
0: I would love to hear more just about how, if you could reflect on your past self who, you know, didn't want to eat Mexican food and didn't want to speak Spanish and all of that, does this feel in a way like you're just trying to kind of close that loop and resolve you know, all the heavy stuff that you had to deal with growing up, you know, in the U.S. I use the
1: word harm because, you know, it's like I insulted my parents and grandparents. And I'm just like, I don't want to eat that garbage. I want a burger. And I think a lot of us, I say it, us as like children of immigrants is this kind of pushback because we don't want to be different and we don't see the value in being different when we're young. Right. And you get bullied or you're told your pozole is so greasy. Why are you eating that for lunch? So then I want Lunchables forever. So it's like these moments where we shun away our history and our culture to like, just fit in. And then as you get older, you're like, I've been fitting in for a long time and I don't like what I'm fitting into. So mm. let me, you know, go back to those moments and see the value in them instead of seeing them as a something that's making me different in a negative way, seeing it as something that's making me different in a positive way. And how do I share that with people? Part of it's like undoing some of that, you know, self-doubt and like self-hate <laughs> that existed.
0: You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. We'll be right back after the break. You can support this podcast and the newsroom that creates it by subscribing to the San Francisco Chronicle at sfchronicle.com slash pod. I'm Soleho, and we're back with Emmanuel Galvan. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news... Leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's peanut butter cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So have your parents tried your stuff? What do they think?
1: So they've tried it they did not know i can make tamales as good as i make them <laughs> when i made them a couple of years ago for christmas and they're like oh my god i get it now it just like took them a while to understand why i was doing what i'm doing but they are just like full on they're on the masa train they're just like let me buy some and sell them to and like get my aunts and sell them to my cousins and stuff my mom's always trying to like just get into as many people as possible. She's like, if you ever have extra, just I'll drive down or you drive up to Napa and I'll just find people to sell it to. <laughs> oh
0: so, my God. I love her. Yeah. So
1: they're like super supportive. They always were. They just kind of were confused why I was doing this like very hard thing because they, you know, they didn't want me to go down a path of like hard labor, which is what they did and continue to do. So yeah, I think they're like a little hesitant at first, but I think they've seen that it, it means a lot to me. And they just want to see that. I'm succeeding in whatever terms I've defined for myself.
0: Speaking of Napa, um, you mentioned that it was really hard to find kind of, you know, the the deep cut, like artisanal Mexican products up there when you were growing up. Has that changed at all? Do you go back up there often? Yeah, I go back often. I feel like it's
1: still the same issue we have in the Bay Area where Hmm. it's still like fresh masa and like certain dishes are still only available in like a fine dining context. You know, much like in the Bay area where, you know, you can go to a, go to a restaurant where you can get fresh mix them all, but it's maybe presented in a a context, that's a little overpriced for most people or Mm -hmm. uncomfortable for most people to engage with, you know, you have a couple of Mexican restaurants in the Napa Valley that are, you know, meant for tourists or people with more disposable income and that that's changed, but I haven't seen a lot of change with everyday kind of places.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I'm I, I'm trying to go up there more often these days to check out, you know, just the sort of burgeoning, it feels like, Mexican food scene too. Like it's very interesting to me just how there's there's certain sets of restaurants, right? Like you said, for tourists and also for people who actually live there and work there. And it seems like these things kind of evolve in parallel. So it's just been really interesting to just observe as an outsider.
1: For a long time I was kind of looking at those fancy, quote unquote, fancy restaurants as a a negative, you know, like they're presenting this thing and it's overpriced, quote unquote, or inaccessible, (laughs) but that is really introducing people to these products. Right. And you can say, oh, they're being whitewashed or they're being presented to wealthy people or, but ultimately what they are doing, they are, they are presenting them and they're giving them value in a way. So that almost is like the first step of getting some of these smaller projects off the ground is kind of making sure people know what these things are and Mm -hmm. are introduced to it and you have seen that in mexico city where you know a lot of pujol and other restaurants were making fresh masa and then people within mexico were like oh this is worth exploring this is worth looking into so then they you know about a decade ago they had a big Renaissance and fresh heirloom masa, and sometimes it just takes a little bit of nudging from a fancy chef to get other people excited about something you know and they have a lot of sway, so I think they are the first kind of evangelists for these products and ingredients that eventually will trickle down and you know make it to everyone else
0: That's a really good point so my final question then is if someone is trying like one of your tortillas for the first time. What's the best way to understand? I mean, what's the best way to eat it so you get the, the whole experience?
1: So heating them up is a little tricky. Um, tortillas are meant to be eaten in the moment, right off of a griddle, warm. They don't like being refrigerated. I recommend spritzing them with a little bit of water, um, heating them up for about 20 seconds per side, and then letting them rest in a kitchen towel for a little bit. Then you're ready to eat them. Um, pull it to your nose and just give it a really, like, good whiff. There's going to be very little to no ammonia or sulfur-like smells to it. It, sh- it should be very subtle and very gentle, like sweet toasted popcorn. It's this really beautiful smell. It's an expression of the maize. It's the first thing you should do. And then eat one on some with a little bit of salt. Just roll it up and kind of chew it slowly and feel the texture. It's chewy, but soft. It has give, but it's somehow very delicate. Yeah, it's supposed to be delicious on its own, and anything you put on top of it is a bonus. So yeah, just try one of on its <laughs>
0: Awesome. Thanks again to Emmanuel Galvan for chatting today. To find out where he's popping up, follow him on Instagram at Bolita bolitamasa. That's at B-O-L-I-T-A-M-A-S-A. Today's episode was produced and edited by Karen Creighton with help from executive producer Sarah Feldberg. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please tell a friend about it and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.